such a joy to be together as the people of God this evening. Uh, I think we have a number of visitors with us because the power is knocked out where they normally worship. We're sorry for the circumstances, but glad that you can be with us to honor the God of heaven this evening. And that's what we're trying to do, of course, here at Eastside, is to honor the God of heaven in our worship assemblies in every way, with our hearts and souls attuned to him, drawing closer to him in the ways that he has prescribed for us to worship. Thank you for being interested in doing that tonight. I so appreciate the prayer that was prayed and the scripture that was read and the beautiful songs that Stuart led us in. That last song was certainly new to me, but so appropriate for what we'll be talking about tonight in the lesson. It's a great song, a song about forgiveness, the Lord's forgiveness of us, the attitude that we as disciples ought to have about forgiving others, so beautifully uh, entwined in that song. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to read a couple of scriptures. We'll go back to these in a few minutes, but these will set the tone for our lesson. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll start in verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And then Colossians chapter 3, and starting in verse 12 of Colossians, Colossians 3 and verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Learning to forgive is vital to maintaining a fruitful relationship with others. It's crucial to maintaining our spiritual well-being and a right relationship with God. Those who refuse to forgive, refuse to cultivate, cultivate this ability, are really only hurting themselves, aren't they? In so many ways. A grudge is poison to one's own soul. It hurts nobody else but you. Letting go of resentment can set you free. It can bring joy and happiness in your life. It opens up the door to connection with others, helps you to become a more positive influence in the lives of others, makes you feel whole. Forgiving others, though, forgiving others takes strength. It takes courage. Especially when you feel you've been wronged, in fact, You probably think you know you've been wronged, but it feels the same whether you have or not. But the fortitude that's required to forgive, the courage and the strength that's required to forgive another person, really pales in comparison to the energy that's necessary to maintain a sizable grudge. It's nothing compared to that. The person, again, that you most hurt by holding on to an offense, by thinking about it, by having malice in your heart toward the person who has offended you in some way, the price that you pay for that is a horrible one. Forgiving one another sets two individuals free, the forgiven and the forgiver. And it's those concepts that we're going to look at in the lesson tonight. So whether deliberately or not, 
Human beings in close relationships invariably hurt each other. If, if I ask you tonight, what other animal, what animal is a human being most closely associated with, most alike? I had this great conversation with my grandson Stephen yesterday in the car coming back from the hospital when we visited Matthew. And a great conversation about how much uh, humans and monkeys are alike and how much they're different. Okay. So most people would say we're, we're a lot like monkeys in, uh, in a lot of ways. We are, and sometimes not in ways that are especially flattering to the monkey. Uh, but in, in any case, uh, we're, we're like monkeys at times. Uh, we're uh, similar to pigs in a lot of ways. I, I know that that pig valve works in human hearts. Human heart is most like a pig's heart. I, I think that tells us something uh, maybe that we don't want to know. Uh, and I think, really when I think about it, one of the animals that we're most alike is porcupines. And the reason we're like porcupines is this. Porcupines can't get close together without hurting each other. And that's about how we are. The closer we get, the more it hurts. That's humanity. But God, in his infinite wisdom and gracious love, has a solution for all of that, where we can dwell together closely with him and with each other, in peace and comfort. And it all has to do with his son dying on the cross. As York talked about this morning, to pay the wages, the wages of sin. And so it's all about Jesus and the way he forgives us. In a lesson, uh, maybe three or four or five years ago, I talked a little bit about forgiveness. And in the start of that lesson, I talked about what forgiveness is not. I want to go back and look at that just briefly with you again to understand what we are really not talking about tonight. Some of the things that we'll be talking about uh, on this slide, some of the things that forgiveness is not, are things that are associated with forgiveness, but they do not equate to it. So the first of those is that forgiveness is not just forgetting something. Now, when you forgive someone truly, in fact, you bring that to remembrance no more. We'll see that in a little while in the scriptures. But just because you forget it, willfully forget that somebody has offended you, done you wrong, or you've done somebody else wrong, that doesn't make it go away. Forgetting alone is not forgiveness. It's not sweeping something under the rug. It's not burying it. It's not pretending like it didn't happen. None of those things is forgiveness. Not really. Forgiveness is not excusing wrong or saying that whatever is done is okay. We forgive people of things that are not okay. If it was okay, it wouldn't need to be forgiven, right? <laughs> so forgiveness is not just saying, oh, uh, that's okay. No, it's not okay. When we excuse people, we don't need to forgive them. When we say, well, I understand you did that by accident. You didn't mean to do that or it was whatever along that line. When we just say, oh, I excuse you, you don't need to forgive them once you've excused them. We excuse people when we understand that they are, in fact, not to blame. We have to forgive people when they are to blame. Huge difference. Forgiveness is not tolerance. The Bible encourages tolerance. I spoke about this on the radio just a couple of weeks ago. But in a biblical way, we are to be long-suffering with one another. The tolerance the Bible teaches, however, is not the tolerance that humankind nowadays teaches. What people mean today by tolerance is not only that we have to accept something that somebody's doing, but that we have to encourage it. We have to support it. We have to celebrate it. 
That's not biblical tolerance at all. But in any case, forgiveness is not tolerance. Tolerance helps us come to a point where a person realizes they need to be forgiven and where we can forgive. Long-suffering accomplishes that. But that's not the same as forgiveness. Forgiveness is not acceptance. You accept things about a person that you do not particularly like. Sandy's a very accepting person in that way. But that's not what forgiveness is all about. Acceptance is important. It's important in any good relationship. But forgiveness assumes that someone has been wronged or mistreated. Not just that we're, you know, putting up with somebody's idiosyncrasies. Or, in my case, with me, it would be idiot-syncrasies. Okay? So, I've got those. We're talking about forgiveness tonight. And I want to tell you that when you talk about biblical things, it's always so important to look for a pattern because God will leave us a pattern of how he wants us to understand something that he is conveying to us. There are patterns all throughout Scripture. We've studied this concept over and over and over again. And certainly there is a divine pattern when it comes to what forgiveness is all about. And that divine pattern is then what we must follow. We are to forgive like the Lord forgives. I read a couple of passages to begin with tonight. Think about what was said in each one of those passages. God is showing us a pattern. In Ephesians 4.32, that we're to be forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. as God in Christ. So here's a pattern. God in Christ has forgiven us and we're to forgive one another according to that pattern. And then Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, did you notice that Paul there says, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Even as, there's your pattern. Even as we have been forgiven. And to add to that, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12, Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So we acknowledge, in approaching God for forgiveness, we acknowledge that the pattern that he would have forgive us, what he follows and does to forgive us, is precisely the pattern that we are using to forgive those indebted to us. That's a tacit acknowledgement of that truth. For those who have been listening to me preach the last couple of years, a necessary implication. The Bible doesn't come out and say that, right? But it says it right there in that passage. So do you notice in these passages, all three of them, depending on the translation you use, our forgiveness is to be just as, or even as, or as God has forgiven us. I believe those truths are, are frankly, so plain as to be incontrovertible. But that does not mean that they're easy to apply. Or even that in all situations we will understand how they ought to be applied. And I'm standing up before you tonight, sharing God's word with you, but admitting that I don't have all the answers to every situation. But I do have a pattern. And I think we can all look at the pattern. 
We are to forgive like the Lord forgives. The Lord's pattern then involves a number of steps. And normally when we start talking about this, we start talking about, well, what does the guilty person need to do? I, I think we need to start with what the forgiving person, the forgiver, needs to do and what his attitude and actions should be. Let's start with that before we start talking about what somebody needs to do to receive forgiveness. So the forgiver loves the offender. Forgiveness starts with the forgiver loving the offender. If we are not doing that, we can't forgive. Not like God does. You see, we're supposed to forgive like God does, right? Like he forgave us. And he starts with this. I love you. My grace is all for you. But not only that, I'm willing to sacrifice myself. God says in Jesus Christ, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you. Wow. Here's the challenge before us if we're to be forgivers. Are we ready to say that? Jesus love for those who killed him on the cross and for those who made it necessary for him to go to the cross, to be crucified to begin with. That's the love of a forgiver. That's the way we're to forgive, which is to say the pattern we find. Romans 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were, look at it, still sinners, Christ died for us. Is God wanting to forgive us even when we're still sinners? You better believe it. That's when Jesus died for us. While we're still sinners. Not when we'd already turned to him and said, oh, please do something for us, God. We're better now. We won't do that again. No. Jesus died for us while we're still sinners. He loved us while we're still sinners. You got that? That's critical. On in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, if when we were enemies, again, we made ourselves enemies by our sins, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And that, of course, He ever lives to make intercession for us. And then back in the book of Colossians, notice with me there, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he is now reconciled by the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So you were enemies, you were alienated, you were outside of a relationship with him by the wicked works that you had committed. You and I were all there, all of us were all there, and yet he brought us back into a relationship with him, him to make again a covenant close fellowship with him, reconciled in his body through his death. He died, he died so that awful people could be forgiven. His enemies. Forgiveness starts here. Your most hated enemy, whoever that is, whoever's done you the most dirt in your life, where's your heart about that person? Do you want them forgiven? 
Are you willing to sacrifice that they might be forgiven? Do you love their soul more than your own life? There's the pattern of forgiveness. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. So when we get into the forgiveness business, end of this, and talk about the brass tacks and the practical application, we're really not going to get anywhere there if we don't start with this loving, self-sacrificial love. That's where it has to start. And we love like that because Jesus loved us like that. And it was on the cross when he looked down at his crucifiers in pain and in anguish and cried out, Luke 23 and verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This disposition of heart precludes the holding or the developing of any kind of grudge. There is no way somebody with this disposition of heart could develop or hold a grudge against anyone. So grudging is out of the picture. Regardless of whatever we think about forgiveness, there is no, no grudge. It can't happen if we have this attitude. According to Jesus, if I ask you, what, what did Jesus say? Nobody responded to this. I'm just asking you, think in your head. What did Jesus say is the second greatest commandment? Let me see. The greatest was, love the Lord your God. The second one is like that, and it is, love your neighbor as yourself, right? You remember that? Do you know where that comes from? comes from, of course, the Old Testament and is found in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 17. You might need to turn there because Jesus is telling us about how we ought to be loving each other. That's the second great commandment. We love God. We love each other as ourselves. And he's drawing that out of a text in the Old Testament that we need to be familiar with. Leviticus 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Y'all got that? You shall not bear any grudge. And the next phrase is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot do that. And bear a grudge. Simple as that. So the second greatest commandment, which is still in force today, has that as a component of it. We are not keeping that commandment if we're holding grudges. And I believe it would do us well before we leave here this evening and certainly before we pill our heads tonight to just think about whether or not we're holding some grudges. And what's really in our hearts. I think in preparing this lesson, I'll just say it, it's done me some good to think about that. James chapter 5 and verse 9. The King James Version says, grudge not. I just love that. <laughs> Simple as can be, right? Grudge not. Don't be grudging. And you look at it in other translations, It'll say something a little bit different, but that's the force of what is being 
said there. To carry a grudge means holding on to or carrying around a feeling of resentment, if not hatred, over some past grievance. Grudges rob us of joy. Grudges rob us of fellowship and effectiveness. Grudges rob us of heaven. I read a story. I'm not sure if it's uh, true or made up, but so just consider it a fable, if you will, because I don't know. But as it as it is told, these two young brothers, young men, decided to go into business together. And they opened this little store uh, in a fairly small town. This is a few years back. And uh, business was going swimmingly at first. And one day one of the brothers came in and the other was in the store. And uh, the one brother said, hey, did you see anything? what happened to that $20 bill I put on top of the cash register? And the other brother said, well, I haven't seen any $20 bill. I don't know what happened to it. And the other brother said, I put a $20 bill on top of the cash register. You're the only one that's in here. They don't just fly away by themselves. What happened to it? The other brother said, I never, I've never seen it. I didn't do anything with it. And they got, they got to arguing back and forth and accusing one another of all sorts of different things. And finally, they had such a falling out and an argument that they couldn't stand it and couldn't stand each other. And they went home and told their wives and that passed on to their children. And before you knew it, they took their little store and they built a wall right down the middle of it. So now there were two stores where once there was one and the two brothers didn't talk for years and the families didn't like each other either and it spread to the whole community. So there was a division in this whole town about which brother, which store you were going to go into and all of that. And then one day about 20 years later, a car pulls up out in front of a the store, one of the stores, and a man gets out, middle-aged man, and he goes in the store. One of the brothers in, in his store is working in there, and the man walks in. He says, or he says, how long have you worked here? And he says, well, I worked here all my life. And he says, well, I, I, I've come to tell you something. He says, about 20 years ago, I was riding the rails, and I, I didn't have any money, and I, I got off in this little town. I came in the back of this store. Nobody saw me, and when I came in, there was a $20 bill laying on the cash register, and I took it. And I've felt bad about it ever since, and I've come back to tell you I'm sorry and to give you the $20 back. And the brother broke down in tears and said, would you please go to the store next door and tell the man in there that same story? And he did. And the man was very surprised to see in front of the two stores two men who looked a lot alike hugging each other and weeping and forgiving each other. There are a lot of elements of that account that illustrate some things we need to consider tonight. For what purpose is our grudge? Is it something that we know happened or something that we imagined happened? Is it something that had to be that way only because we think it had to be that way? And even if all of it's true and $20 was taken by one or the other, may I remind you of something we studied in a sermon some time ago, and it is this, that any person is more valuable than anything 
What's your grudge over? Is it over a thing? Is it over something you just felt, you thought happened, you were sure it did, but do you really know? And even if it did, do you love that person like Jesus loved you? How can we hold the grudge? How can we do it? When Jesus died for me. Those are the questions. The Bible is pretty clear about it. Again, if we go forward and look at what was said in the book of Leviticus, you shall not bear guilt. You shall not hold a grudge. It is often the little things that divide us, but whatever it is, great things are stolen from us by a little thief named Grudge. My plea to you tonight is don't let the devil outwit you. The devil is cunning. He's diabolical. That's where the name comes from. The devil will do everything he can do to separate us from one another and to separate us from Christ. Will he not? And one of the greatest tools that he has in his armory of tricks and weapons against us is if he can get us to not forgive each other. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he was well aware of what Paul was trying to do with the Corinthians. And I, I know there are people who take different views of what I'm about to say, but I'm pretty sure myself that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians there to withdraw from the man who had his brother's wife and what a sinful thing that is and they needed to do that, I'm pretty sure that the man that we read about in 2 Corinthians is that guy who has since then repented and come back to be a part of the fold at Corinth. Whether or not that's the case, I am sure that the guy in 2 Corinthians was a heinous sinner that needed to be forgiven. And here's what Paul says about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. I'm afraid so much of the time we are outwitted by Satan. If you have a grudge that separated you from a brother in Christ for days, weeks, months, or years, you have surely been outwitted by the prince of darkness. And he has brought darkness into your life and darkness into your soul and hatred into your very being. Because he's for, convinced you that forgiveness isn't worth it. What's the pattern of forgiveness? Well, that's where it starts for the forgiver. What about for the person who needs forgiving? Well, the guilty must recognize and repent of their sins. It, it's interesting to me in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 that when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches his sermon along with the other apostles, the very thing that he holds everybody there guilty of is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross with some of those same people who were on the day, there on the day of Pentecost, I'm sure, 
were there at the crucifixion and may have actually heard Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And I understand Jesus may have been talking about the Roman soldiers, but I think he was probably spreading it further than that. Ever thought about the fact that the people that Peter is saying, you're still guilty of killing Christ, and what, well, what do we need to do? And the first word out of Peter's mouth is, don't worry about it, Christ already forgave you. No, that wasn't it. What was it? First word out of Peter's mouth was, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. First word out of his mouth, you've got to repent. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, the first thing Peter says to those people who gathered to hear the truth of the power that was with Peter to uh, raise that lame man up, Peter says that you need to repent and be converted, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord so that your lives can be changed. In Acts 8 and verse 22, when a man who was a Christian, Simon, who had been a sorcerer, when he fell into sin, he was in bound by bitterness and, and iniquity. And Peter says, repent and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart will be forgiven you. Over and over and over again, sinners in need of forgiveness throughout Scripture. Old Testament as well. New Testament as well. Look at the ministry of John the Baptist. Look at the first thing Jesus says when he goes out preaching the gospel. First word out of Jesus' mouth when he begins to preach the gospel after his temptation. First word, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. We cannot expect God to forgive people. He wants to. His son died to. But we cannot expect God to forgive people. He does not forgive people who do not repent. It's the first condition. And while we must not hold a grudge against anyone, he doesn't. We must also urge, urge, rebuke, exhort anyone who sinned against us to repent. That's the pattern. And that, frankly, is the pattern that is laid out in Scripture. It's the Lord's way of lovingly caring for his people. Jesus says, in fact, in Revelation 3 and verse 19 to the church at Laodicea, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. This is the approach he tells us to take. This is the pattern. That's what he does. Luke 17 and verse 3, he says in, in no uncertain terms, if your brother sins against you, what's the next phrase? Automatically forgive him? No. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That's just as plain as anything can possibly be. The guilty who repent are going to be willing to confess their sins. If you have done something wrong and you don't want to do that anymore, you realize you've offended your brother or sister, you've offended the God of heaven, you've done that which is wrong, and you're, you're, you're turning away from that, why wouldn't you want everybody in the world to know that? I'm not that person anymore. I don't want to be that person anymore. I'm sorry I ever was that person. People say, well, how many, do I have to come forward in church to confess it? Do I have to, who do I have to, who do I have to, who can I? Please let me let everybody know that I'm not doing that anymore. No, you don't have to come forward in church to confess every sin, okay? That doesn't have to happen. But you do need to confess it. 
and be willing to confess it to whomever that you're not that person anymore. Why, why wouldn't you want to do that? Say, I'm changing and I need help changing and please pray for me that I can change and please forgive me that I didn't change when I should have. And so in Scripture, again, over and over, simple formula, if we confess our sins, God's pattern is, if we conf- if, that's if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 and verse 9 says, that's the pattern. Then what do we do? Well, not surprisingly, James 5.16, confess your trespasses to one another. As we confess our sins to Him for forgiveness, We confess our trespasses to one another and pray for one another that we can be healed. The psalmist says in Psalm 32 and verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So repentance and confession are just part and parcel of what's necessary for forgiveness. Now, please understand, that doesn't earn your forgiveness. You can't just say... (laughs) You know, I, I'm sorry I did that. I'm not going to do that anymore. And, uh, and, uh, and, and confess that and say, and, well, I've earned forgiveness now. You have to forgive me. No, you're missing it. The only way, the only way you're going to get forgiven is because Jesus died for you. And because the person that you've offended is also someone that Jesus died for. And when they forgive you, as has been said in the scriptures that we've read, they're going to forgive you in the name of Jesus Christ who died for your sins. That's the cost. That's the price that was paid for your sins to be forgiven. Forgiveness from God and from us must be thorough, not partial. God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us, Psalm 103. The Lord does not remember, as we said earlier, uh, forgiveness is not just forgetting, but when forgiveness happens, the sins are no longer called to mind. The Lord says in Hebrews 10 and verse 17, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And God says in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. What a blessing. That's how we're to be as well. Once we've forgiven another, the matter is erased from the record. It will not be brought up again to win an argument, to belittle somebody, to disparage them, or to force someone to pay you back for something that you said you forgave. If they've repented, they They'll want to pay you back. But that's irrelevant to this. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, you might might remember there was a servant that owed his master uh, a thousand times more than a person could pay back in a lifetime. And he begged his master to forgive him, and his master did. That's, That's me before Jesus. But the servant had another servant who owed him just really a pittance, just a relatively small, small amount. And he takes his fellow servant and, you know, the old shakedown, he grabs him and he shakes him, pay me what you owe me. And when he couldn't, he threw him into the prison, into the debtor's prison until all was paid. The master dealt with that unforgiving, forgiven servant 
And he says in Matthew chapter 18, his master was angry, in verse 34. He delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. And then Jesus says, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You don't go back on it. You don't dig it up again. You forgive the debt. And so we're a house of prayer at East Side. That's not a boast. That's our goal. That's our vision. That's our prayer. Is that we will be a house of prayer. That's our theme for this year here at East Side. And I may tell you that all that we've said tonight is so important if we're to be a house of prayer. One time, Jesus said, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. If you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And so it's necessary that a house of prayer also be a house of forgiveness. And may God help us if we're not. Thank you so kindly for listening. Please take it to heart. The things from God's word that we've looked at tonight. God loves you so much. Jesus died for you. Take that to heart. Be the kind of person Jesus has been for you to somebody else. Show his grace to somebody else. Do so without grudging, no matter what they've done. Do so with a heart determined that you'll do whatever it takes to help them seek forgiveness so that you may forgive them. Tonight, somebody may be here who needs to be forgiven by the God of heaven, by your brothers and sisters in Christ, Maybe somebody who's never named the name of Jesus, who never come in contact with that blood which alone can wash away our sins. What about your situation? What about your heart? Won't you know the love that God has for you by naming the name of Jesus and being obedient to his will? We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.